Early ballots are going out around Arizona today with the November election just 27 days away. Some of the races are growing in intensity, so how much will early voting affect them? I'm Steve Goldstein. On today's Here and Now, I'll check in with pundits Felicia Rodolini and Wes Gullett about a few high-profile matchups like John McCain versus Ann Kirkpatrick for U.S. Senate and Joe Arpaio versus Paul Penzone for Maricopa County Sheriff, and how significant could so-called dark money be on those and other races. Plus, CoreLogic is projecting U.S. home prices to reach record highs by the end of 2017. The previous high was set in 2006, just a bit before the housing market and the broader economy imploded. Should we fear the same result this time? I'll ask real estate finance expert and George Mason University professor Anthony Sanders. And climate change is the common theme of a new collection of short stories. One of its editors, Joey Eshrick, joins me with insights. Here and now is next on KJZZ. The news is first. It's KJZZ's Here and Now. Good morning. I'm Steve Goldstein in Phoenix. Coming up this hour, I'll check in with Felicia Rodolini and Wes Gullett about a few high-profile election matchups in Arizona, including John McCain versus Ann Kirkpatrick for U.S. Senate and Joe Arpaio versus Paul Panzone for Maricopa County Sheriff. Plus, CoreLogic is projecting U.S. home prices to reach record highs by the end of 2017. The previous high was set in 2006, just a bit before the housing market and the broader economy imploded. So should we fear the same result this time? I'll ask real estate finance expert and George Mason University professor Anthony Sanders. We start today's program with the race for Arizona's Corporation Commission. It rarely garners that much attention, but in the past couple of years, that relatively unknown state agency has become a hotbed of conflict, mostly centered around allegations of outside influence on the commissioners and the fight between the solar industry and the state's utilities. Last night, the five candidates met for a debate hosted by the Arizona Clean Elections Commission and broadcast by Arizona PBS. KJZZ's Will Stone covers the commission and joins me now. So, Will, First, what was the tenor of the debate last night? You had two Democrats, three Republicans running for those three open seats. That's right, Steve. I would say the debate was quite contentious and spirited at times. As, as you mentioned, there are two Democrats running. There's Bill Mundell, who's a former commissioner who was a Republican and is now running as a Democrat for the commission. And then you have Tom Chaben, who's a former state representative. And both were very aggressive in challenging the two of the three Republican candidates about what really has been the central issue of this campaign, the dark money influence. It's widely believed that Arizona Public Service, the state's largest utility, spent about $3.2 million in 2014 to help elect two current commissioners. This was unprecedented. Regulated utilities have not traditionally interfered in the elections for the commission till now. APS uh, neither denies nor confirms that it was behind the contributions, but everyone suspects that's the case. So Democrat Tom Chabin spoke to this repeatedly during the debate. This commission needs to establish a rule that is clear. If you are a government-created monopoly, you must reveal every single political contribution, your activity at the legislature. And how about the other candidates? How do they feel about this? The key figure in this whole issue is Commissioner Bob Burns. He's a Republican running for re-election on the commission, and Burns has really been the standard bearer in terms of leading the fight to force APS and its parent company, Pinnacle West, to disclose whether it was behind the spending. And Burns recently subpoenaed the companies for financial records going back five years trying to get 
uh, any records of political spending. The company then responded by suing Burns, claiming the subpoenas are unlawful and that, among other things, the spending is a matter of free speech. So this one issue has become a kind of litmus test for the candidates. Do they side with Burns, as the Democrats have, or not? Uh, Bill Mundell, the other Democrat, attacked the other Republican uh, and retired Judge Boyd Dunn on this point in the debate last night for essentially being soft on the issue. You can take a position. You refuse to take a position. Do you support his subpoena? Would you sign it? And do you support a subpoena against Pinnacle West? And so how did Dunn respond to that? Well, it's true Boyd Dunn has been the least vocal in the campaign about taking a firm stance on the issue of whether APS and its parent company must disclose the spending. He's mostly said he believes there are ways to resolve this issue that prevents spending on future races. Here he was a bit more opinionated but um, than he has been in the past. This is what he said to Mundell. This is why I support Commissioner Byrne's subpoena, because he had a right to do that. And by doing that, I knew very well that that would enter into the legal arena. Now we have the court there for the opportunity to resolve this issue in the future. So there you hear Dunn sounding a similar note that the courts will determine this. He often cites his experience as a, as a superior court judge, somebody who can bring people together and resolve these issues. But similar criticisms were also aimed at the other Republican, who is a current commissioner, Andy Tobin, and was a former uh, Speaker of the House. So does Tobin have a record of this at the commission? What has he been saying? Topin has not necessarily supported Burns' efforts. Uh, for example, earlier this year, Burns attempted to hire a well-known regulatory lawyer to investigate these questions of outside influence on the commission, including the 2014 expenditures that are believed to have come from APS. And Tobin and the other commissioners shot that contract down, arguing the lawyer has connections to the solar industry, among other things. So he's seen by his critics as having stifled Burns' efforts, although Tobin has said from the beginning that Burns should just do the subpoena himself, um, not hire another lawyer. And Tobin did vote to cover the attorney fees that Burns is now paying to defend himself against APS. So he's certainly not in the mundell chabin camp on this, uh, but he's not necessarily opposed to Burns directly. And the specter of conflict of interest has come up with Tobin himself related to the solar industry? Yes. Tobin was appointed the commission at the beginning of this year by the governor after the chairwoman of the commission, Susan Bittersmith, resigned over uh, attorney general's investigation about conflicts of interest uh, involving her. It then came out that Tobin's son-in-law was an employee of Solar City, which is the national solar leasing company that's the biggest player in the fight to preserve pro-solar policies like net metering in Arizona. And that led Tobin to actually go to the legislature this session and change the conflict of interest rules for commissioners so he could vote on solar-related issues. And this led to a kind of awkward, tense moment when the moderator, Ted Simons, asked him about this. This is how Tobin responded. There is no conflict of interest going on with me at all, especially now that they fired my son-in-law. So I hope a lot of you are, are thrilled. But at the end of the day, I have never been bought by anybody. The fact that Tobin's son had been fired was news to myself and I think all of us. He was not, uh, he was a low-level employee. He was not in a ma management position. But Tobin actually accused the moderator of being biased and said he was offended by the question. And I think this just illustrates the level of sensitivity about whether commissioners are somehow compromised. So clearly there was some intensity to this debate, but overall you follow this very closely. Did anything new come out of this? Do you think it could sway voters one way or the other? Overall, Steve, we didn't learn much new substantively uh, about these candidates and their positions. I will say that 
um, all the candidates, especially the two Republicans, appeared to express more support for Bob Burns and his efforts involving APS than we have seen in the past. For the Democrats who are running to be on a commission that is currently dominated by Republicans, they have branded themselves from the beginning as the candidates who are on the side of Burns and are basically basically going to be the ones who you know, put the utilities in, in line. And so now based on the primary, Burns and Tobin do appear to have the best shots at re-election because they are the incumbents. We'll see whether the aggression that you saw from the Democrats actually plays out uh, in terms of swaying voters more toward uh, their side of the political aisle. KJZZ's Will Stone giving us more about last night's Arizona Corporation Commission debate and what might come in November. Will, thank you. Thanks, Steve. You're listening to KJZZ's Here and Now. I'm Steve Goldstein in Phoenix. Earlier this week, we saw and heard the one and only U.S. Senate debate between John McCain and Ann Kirkpatrick. Ads for Sheriff Joe Arpaio and challenger Paul Penzone have been ubiquitous. And as you just learned from reporter Will Stone, competition to serve on the Arizona Corporation Commission is increasing in intensity. With early ballots going out today, we'll review those races and more with Felicia Rodolini, former attorney general nominee. Felicia, welcome to be here. And also Wes Gullett is here. He's currently the CEO of OH Strategic Communications. Wes, welcome back. Thank you very much, Steve. Felicia, I want to start with you on the McCain-Kirkpatrick debate. Uh, There's a lot flying around. Obviously, there are a lot of ads. Senator McCain has a lot of money, a lot of name recognition. Were there any issues that Ann Kirkpatrick could have hit Senator McCain on, legitimate issues that she didn't take advantage of? Well, I believe that she was consistent in her criticalness of uh, John McCain's lack of uh, record in helping Arizonans. She could have probably hit that a little harder. I mean, he has been in public office 33 years, and the he, she could have taken a page out of Donald Trump's page, playbook and had said, what have you done for the last 33 years? Really? You can name two or three things over and over and over again? Um, I think that was an area where she could have hit harder. Um, She has been a consistent campaigner. I think that the race will be close, and anyone who watched that debate had already made up their mind on who they were voting for. I think it was just a matter of fans of either one of those candidates wanting to see who did better. And West Senator McCain certainly loves the stage, uh, has been very good at it for a long time, always accepts the challenge and has a lot of points to make. How do you think he came across if there were any undecided people watching? Well, I think John did a great job. I, I, I watched it. I thought um, I was surprised at how good he did. Um, and considering the, con- the consistent criticism, you're too old, you've been there too long, you haven't done enough for Arizona, I thought he took all those issues on And the great thing about the debate was it was mostly about policy. And we hadn't heard that. So it was like, oh, my goodness. In a, in, in a political campaign, we're actually talking about issues. Well, and I thought that was really um, – I thought that was refreshing. I think Anchor Patrick gets credit for that because there was an awful lot of the debate about – blaming her for Obamacare, blaming President Obama for all of the woes of the last eight years, and then trying to tie her into it. And there were times where she said, I want to talk about the issues in Arizona and what's important in our economy and and, politi- and the development of Arizona. What about the fact that in both cases, and this happens, I'm sure, in Senate races all the time, but Kirkpatrick is the stand-in for Clinton. And of course, the ads have 
Nancy Pelosi and Harry Reid, which we always see. And on the McCain side, it's, oh, you know, you're tied to Trump, and how come you didn't unendorse him earlier? Do voters get value from that if the candidate they're voting for locally is so tied to the candidate, even if in a lot of cases it's they barely know the candidate at the top of the ticket? Well, I, Felicia and I were talking about this earlier, and, and it is this is an election that I, I haven't seen this kind of election devoid of policy. There's not a policy set that uh, the people, it's personality driven. It's all about the personality. And so I think the public is kind of, and that's all we hear about mm-hmm. is the presidential campaign. And so I think that when you hear and talk about policy, it's kind of refreshing. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, I think, and I think Obamacare is a policy issue. Um, and so I hammering her on that, it, yeah, especially considering that there's a lot of people who are not doing well under Obamacare. And you can argue that a lot of people got coverage, but now it's prices are going up. Well, I think it's difficult to debate uh, someone who is blaming you for a lot of things you had nothing to do with or very little to do with. Uh, but I think that the ads this cycle are going to be less effective than in past cycles. And in Ann Kirkpatrick's uh, case, she's had eight plus million dollars of attack ads against her before, even the same ads that we're seeing now, and she's won. Um, This is a year where the voters are so polarized that uh, it's not going to be persuasion. It's going to be voter turnout across the United States. And I think that this is why all the races are going to be close. And let's move past McKinnon Kirkpatrick now and go to another race that seems personality-driven as well as it always is with Sheriff Joe Arpaio defending against Paul Penzone. Now, Wes, last time around, it was the closest race of Arpaio's career. And now, with all the money that Sheriff Joe Arpaio has in the war chest, a lot of that's been used to bring up accusations against uh, Paul Penzone. At this point, uh, and, and the timing of now the federal prosecution of the sheriff, Who's who's voting for him? Because obviously a lot of people will. I knocked on 10,000 doors when I was running. And the first question I always got was, where are you with the sheriff? And you never knew how to answer it, right? But everybody wanted to know how you were with the sheriff. That, that was four years ago. Ancient history. Today, though, Joe Arpaio has a following that is intense. Mm-hmm. And this indictment by the federal government is or um, saying they're going to charge him is going to increase his fundraising. There's no question and it's going to be one of the best fundraising days today uh, of his campaign. And what he does with that money is going to be interesting to see. Um, because when you have, when you can tell your story and the other guy can't, it makes a huge difference. And so, I, you know, it's going to be really, 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 really close. Now, Felicia, yeah. briefly before the break, please. I agree. Uh, the closest race of his career was with a libertarian candidate. There is no libertarian candidate this time around. It's just Paul Penzone and Joe Arpaio. Um, But the folks that are going to vote for him will vote for him if he's sitting in a jail cell. I think this is going to be super close. There's more voters than last time that will vote for Paul Penzone, and the polling is showing that. But I think um, I can't wait till election day on this. That's Felicia Rodolini. Also here is Wes Gullett. We'll continue our conversation about November's elections and the impact on Arizona coming up next on Here and Now. It's KJZZ's Here and Now. Good morning. I'm Steve Goldstein in Phoenix with Felicia Rodolini and Wes Gullett. We're talking about some of the Arizona races coming up next month as early ballots go out today. 
Felicia, earlier in the program, Corporation Commission got a lot of attention. Another big debate last night. This was an agency that did not get much attention, but it has a tremendous amount of power. What are you looking for going forward? Not necessarily who wins, but what issues are going to be key? Is, is Bob Burns, uh, if he stays on, is his fight with APS going to continue? Are we going to forget this kind of thing, or will this always be lingering? It will always be lingering. It's, a, it's about integrity. It's about conflicts of interest on the Corporation Commission, which is considered the fourth branch of Arizona's government. It's an independent body who creates monopolies. Uh, they created the Arizona Public Service as a regulated monopoly. And so we are always going to have issues there. And I think Bob Burns's fight is courageous. It's a crusade that he really believes in. And this is a gentleman who is not uh, he's a moderate Republican, but I think he's also a very conservative legislator, highly regarded, highly respected, and he sees something that's wrong, and it's unfair, and it's unjust, and he wants to get to the bottom of it, and that is popular, and that is important. I've, I've never really heard Bob Burns called a moderate, though. No, I don't. <laughs> I, did I call him a moderate? I don't, I don't think I called him a moderate. He, um, but, you know, I think... The solar industry right now, I've, I read my mail when it comes to the House. Everything about the Corporation Commission that I have received to, to, to date has had a solar emblem on it. They've paid for it. They're doing the exact same money, when, the, the exact same thing. And when they were hammering about dark money, they weren't, no one's hammering the solar industry on the unbelievable amount of money that they're spending. They're spending millions of dollars to get people elected. Now, I love solar energy. I just don't want to pay for my neighbor or somebody in Paradise Valley who's got a solar array on their house. I don't think it's fair to me. But So I think those issues are fair, and they're going to talk about those things. And I think the Republicans are going to be committed to renewable energy, too, because you got to be. You have to be. And so I think... And the fact that Boyd Dunn is a former judge, I think, is going to come through in the election. People don't really appreciate that, but that's important when you're in a judicial format like the Corporation Commission. So with the accusations against APS, which have not been proven, but that most people sort of assume is the case, have we seen less of APS involved during this time around? And has that allowed some solar advocates to sort of up their influence in this case? We've seen less of APS, partly because they have had to go radio silent as a result of the 24, 2014 election cycle. And what we know has been in the public is that there's investigations going on. And frankly, they've all lawyered up. And they can't really uh, continue to be in the public eye in the same way. It does give the solar industry a perfect opportunity to do the same thing. Uh, that goes back to what Robert, uh, Bob, what Bob Burns wants to do. He wants to create rules that apply to everyone in this regard. Right, and it, it was a brilliant political strategy. You freeze up uh, the utilities, you get a free run. The solar guys get a free run. Um, the investigation, I, you know, it, from reading the news, it looks like it might have bubbled out of this. The solar guys always are talking about it when it comes up. However, um, so now you've got a one-sided situation, I think, in a race where there's no money for the candidates. And this is the hard part. When there's no money for the candidates to be able to use a microphone of their own and tell us what right. they really think, but we have other people telling that story, we get kind of a, 
uh, weird view of it. Well, let's talk about Bill Mundell and Tom Chabin. They are clean election candidates, and that is their handicap in that they don't have the money to get on TV and to generate the kind of name recognition they need. However, they're both well-known. Bill Mundell was on the Corporation Commission and can take credit for many of the policies back in the early 2000s that led to the solar industry having an opportunity to flourish. And so those two are going to be formidable. And we know that it's close. I, okay, Wes is winking at me, and I, I can kick him under the table. So uh, I've already done it by accident. So um, it's a close race, and it is going to be uh, a great opportunity to get some Democrats on the Corporation Commission. Yeah, it will be. And, and since there aren't any Democrats in statewide office, it would be it really refreshing. <laughs> but the, the here's I, I think it's going to be really close too. I think all these races are going to be really close. And uh, I think that uh, it'll be very interesting to see how it all turns out. Um, and I, I think we've got really good candidates running. Um, I like the Republicans a little better than the Democrats. Mm, never mind. Guys, just about two minutes left, but I want to make sure we hit something that is a bigger picture item for me. It's not on the ballot this time, but it was almost going to be, and then there were some money issues that, is Arizona going to see a top two primary sort of format on the ballot again at some point? And would that be good for the state in general, for people to work together better? Wes? Um, I don't don't think so. I don't think it's a good... I don't think California and Louisiana are models that we want to go for. Um, in California, they, yeah. they're always uh, playing it. Uh, it. It's ridiculous. I think it'd be dangerous, especially what we really need to have is fair districts and more competitive districts in our state. If we have that, then we don't have to worry about all Legislative and congressional. Yeah. Yes. And I think that, I, and frankly, I think the legislature is better to draw those than a commission. I would agree. We need to, uh, it's not about the top two, top two, mm-hmm. top two tier election process. Uh, we need to have funds for these candidates. Uh, we need to reform the clean election system completely. Uh, it's not working for anyone. And I think that that is where we should focus our efforts. And briefly, not to spring this one on you guys late, but just briefly, any any upsets you see in Arizona? Do you see any incumbents losing of any of the major races, maybe ones we touched on, maybe ones we didn't? Um, I, no, I, I think we're going to wake up the day after the election and we're going to be like, wow, that was a lot to do about the same. I disagree. <laughs> uh, I believe that the top of the ticket, Hillary Clinton, is going to help all of the candidates down ballot. Uh, The top of the ticket on the Republican side is going to hurt all of the Republicans down ballot, including the Maricopa County uh, candidates, including Helen Purcell, including uh, Joe Arpaio, um, and uh, including Bill Montgomery. We have a viable candidate named Diego Rodriguez who's running for county attorney. If it goes the way some believe and that the new registered voters out there who are off the radar and not getting surveyed in any polls vote, we could have a very different Arizona and a very different Maricopa County the morning after the election. Brief rebuttal, us or no? Um, you, you know. <laughs> she came yeah. at you strong right there. Yeah, she did. And she's very good. She's <laughs> very good debater. She's a very – but I, I don't buy it. I'm not buying it. I think that – I think that Hillary may win Arizona. Don't get me wrong. 
But I don't. At the end of the day, I don't think that her uh, coattails are very long. Wes Gullett is CEO of OH Strategic Communications, and Felicia Rodolini, attorney and former Attorney General nominee. Great to have you both here. Thanks. You're listening to KJZZ's Here and Now in Phoenix. I'm Steve Goldstein. CoreLogic is projecting U.S. housing prices to rise by more than 5% by next summer, which would get them past 2006 peak levels by the end of 2017. So should nervousness reign considering what happened not long after those top prices were reached a decade ago? With me to tell us whether to worry or stay calm is Anthony Sanders, Distinguished Professor of Real Estate Finance in the School of Business at George Mason University. He also taught at the University of Chicago, ASU, and The Ohio State University. Professor Sanders, how are you? Hey, thanks a lot, Steve, for having me. Yeah, good to have you back. So in general, what are housing prices looking like around the country right now? Is there reason for people to start worrying or no? Well, the answer is yes. Uh, however, for a different set of reasons than we saw back in the uh, housing bubble. Uh, let me clarify. So CoreLogic has come out and said housing prices are supposed to grow at about, uh, I think, 5.6% next year. Right. Which is, again, it's slowing down because it's been rising faster than that recently. Um, that's the good news. However, the bad news is that average wage growth is only about 2.5% per year. So housing prices, once again, growth rates are outstripping the ability to pay for it. And that's always dangerous, and that's usually the sign of a bubble. Now, having said that, let me discuss market conditions. Mm -hmm. During the housing bubble, we we had you know, lots of mortgage fraud. We had um, lots of you know, products such as Alt-A loans, which better known as liar loans, uh, and a lot of the subprime products that we used to have are not gone, but they're greatly trimmed back. And so, essentially, the banks are are making loans that are more that are better underwritten. Uh, so we're not seeing some of the problem. But again, that doesn't alleviate the fact that we now have wage growth, you know, literally half of what house prices are growing at, which is not a good sign. So are we going to get uh, potentially then more people underwater again who are saying to themselves, oh, well, I can afford... I mean, are the, are the loans available to any degree to the extent that they were a decade ago? Uh, well, they, they have recently. Uh, Freddie Mac and Fannie Mae have started ex what they call expanding the credit box, which means letting people with lower credit scores or FICO scores apply for a loan. However, uh, despite some of the hysteria I've been reading, they're, they're not really opening the floodgates. They're just, they're just feeling their way because they don't want to go through another fiasco like that happened in 2007 through 2009. Uh, so, But the, the issue is that wage growth since 2007 has just been dead slow. It's half of what it used to be. Uh, so th that's, that's a problem. So what do we do if housing is getting up? Particularly Arizona, you're blessed. You went through a correction. That's not the blessed part. The, <laughs> the blessed part is, <laughs> I know from personal experience, but the, the blessed part is your housing prices are considerably lower than they are on the West Coast. Uh, 
like L.A., San Diego, San Francisco, Seattle, et cetera. Now, they're having real problems with house price. In fact, uh, even San Francisco is starting to slow down rather dramatically in terms of home sales and, uh, and price growth. So I think Arizona is well-situated. Uh, but I don't see the bubble like we saw back in 2007. This is a different type of bubble. This is purely a wage growth pro- issue. Well, the Arizona being well situated, though, you also wrote recently on your on your blog, uh, Confounded Interest, about Los Angeles having the lowest U.S. home ownership rate with the seventh <laughs> most expensive rents. And one would think that some of those people from L.A., as they do in other professions, might end up coming to the Phoenix area. But then does that cause a bubble here again because people are saying, well, yes, compared to Los Angeles, Phoenix is cheap, but then they drive it up again, so it's no longer cheap. Well, history repeats itself, and, and you're right for noticing that. You know, L.A. does have the worst home ownership rate in the United States and the seventh seventh worst rental rates. So either people are going to have to leave Phoenix, they're going to have to build a lot more multifamily housing, but they're not going to be able to get into owner-occupied housing. Owner-occupied housing in, in the L.A. area is just out of sight. I mean, it's not within the reach of the middle-class community anymore. Uh, so, yeah, they're either going to have to pick up and move or just rent. But, again, it, it, part of it's a failure of the uh, multifamily sector to deliver a proper amount of supply, and they're just not doing it. Now, you have an expertise not just in real estate but in, in finance in general. And without getting this too political because I don't want to have it be about the presidential candidates. Are there certain policies that that you think would make sense that would, let's say, benefit the so-called middle class um, that could also get things where where wages are up, uh, but it doesn't necessarily involve certain things that certain parties won't even discuss, like tax increases and that sort of thing? Do you think there are policies that could happen that could make it so wages go up so that with housing prices going up, there could be a balance of some sort? Or is that is that post-Great Recession almost an impossibility? Well, it's not an impossibility. Uh, we kind of, how should I say, we, we shot ourselves in the foot following the uh, Great Recession uh, in the sense that I think a lot of people in Congress in particular and the administration misread what the cause of the recession was. And so all their attempts to save us from another recession caught, kind of doomed us to a very slow-growth economy. Um, I'll give you a good example, because I was listening to your uh, people before I got on, on, on clean energy. Um, <clears throat> I wanted to chime in, but I'm not rude. Um, well, let me just discuss what happened. After the um, crash, something had to be done. Dodd-Frank, which was a massive bill legislation that formed the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, which I don't know if you saw this, but one of the uh, lower courts deemed that they were not constitutionally authorized to do what they're doing. Mm-hmm. So that's that's going to be an interesting play. Uh, but what they did, they came in and they you know, created the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, which has been very kind of, you know, and I don't disagree with everything they're saying. And parts of me agree with it, parts of me don't. I have a lot of parts. But in a sense, <laughs> sort of banning banks from making subprime lending of certain types is, you know, again, the lower-income households demand credit, and we should give it to them. I don't like the government rationing out credit to people and being in control of that. They also you know, said we can't have certain types of uh, mortgages anymore. You can't have a mortgage longer than 30 years, uh, although most governments in Europe are now going to 50-year debt. Uh, we're kind of, it's kind of passing behind the times. 
Um, but there's a lot of legislation that's put in there that has really restricted bank lending. Mm. And by the way, a lot of the big banks are out of the lending business. Mm. Uh, thanks to Dodd-Frank and Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, I think only Wells Fargo is left amongst the big lenders. And we know what <laughs> problems they're having. Yeah. <laughs> right, they don't have a sparkling reputation. But now but now we end up with um, you know, other non-bank lenders really being big players in the market, and some of them are not regulated at all. So, um, But again, but I, th- I think some of the policy we put in, and again, EPA, I have asthma, so bless their hearts. I appreciate not spewing the uh, atmosphere with tons of pollutants. On the other hand, uh, you create enough bad... Uh, rules, you you end up shutting down small businesses. And small business growth, which I'm sure you also read on my blog, is is down to almost non-existent levels other than starting up very small things like food carts and Mm -hmm. things like that in Los Angeles, which is an actually excellent business model. But again, we've we've gotten to the point where we, we went regulation crazy, and we're now seeing a massive decline in the ability of uh, American households to earn money. So they could they could start deregulating, but that's almost a no-no term. And I guarantee you, if Hillary's elected, we're just going to see more and more regulation. So, well, professor, what you yeah. want. Professor, that's, that's all the time we have. But thanks very much for the time, as always. Anthony Sanders is Distinguished Professor of Real Estate Finance in the School of Business at George Mason University. Have a good rest of the day. Thanks. Hey, thanks a lot. Bye-bye. And still to come on Here and Now, we'll look at the environmental history of the American West, and we'll have some climate change fiction. Stay with us on Here and Now. You're listening to KJZZ's Here and Now. I'm Steve Goldstein in Phoenix. How much do we owe the land around us? What does it mean to be a good steward? And to what extent are we too focused on the economy at the expense of the environment? Those issues are argued about all across the U.S., but probably no more so than in the West. Sarah Dant is a Weber State history professor and author of the new book, Losing Eden, an Environmental History of the American West. And Sarah, welcome to Here and Now. Early in the book, you shoot holes in the idea that the American West was a pristine Eden. How much of that do you attribute to a lack of respect for Native populations and how they dealt with the land? Well, I, you've picked up on the uh, double entendre that is the title of my book. I thought that people would come to the book thinking one thing with a title called Losing Eden. And in fact, as you suggest, my motivation is to get people to abandon that notion that there's some pristine myth that we should return to because the West has always been um, inhabited, altered, and uh, manipulated, and I think it gives us a much more realistic understanding of human nature interaction over a long period of time if we understand how Native people interacted with nature and then how that Uh, can inform us here in the present. So I I fully believe that an idea of Eden isn't very helpful and understanding that there have been people for a long time, thousands of years, living in the West makes this a much better story. Well, then how much did the myth of the American Eden or even the Go West Young Man concept actually hurt the land that those people were so eager to see and then settle in? I think for a lot of people... It was the myth that drew them to the West. I mean, if you look at the Overland pioneers who are ambitious to get to California or Oregon, what motivates them across those long, weary miles in the Great Plains is exactly that hope for a land of milk and honey. Mormons that are coming to Utah 
as well. And I think in some ways having that sense of a pristine myth and unbounded nature allowed for a level of exploitation and use that was not sustainable. I think people really couldn't conceive of a nature that had limits until we began to confront that. You have a quote in the book from Aldo Leopold that says, quote, we abuse land because we regard it as a commodity belonging to us. How much of it do you think over the course of history has been abuse, and how much do you think was somewhat legitimate, at least based on human survival? Well, I mean, obviously, that's a, a semantic argument as much as anything, and all humans use the use nature to promote themselves and advance their societies. So, um, but the abuse comes when you have to factor in trying to uh, get beyond sustainability to a, an extra local commodity-based market system, and that's when. I think what Leopold was talking about with abuse tends to come in because then you're trying to satisfy not local demands, but uh, in some cases insatiable international demands. And then the the weight that people um, exert on a particular landscape is unbearable. It's KJZZ's Here and Now. I'm Steve Goldstein in Phoenix talking with Sarah Dant. She's the author of the new book, Losing Eden, An Environmental History of the American West. Sarah, how much um, is bipartisanship required these days to make any reforms or even to educate the public when it comes to the environment? Because I think a lot of people would be surprised that protecting the environment has become such a partisan issue. You know, it it has become really partisan, and that's unfortunate. The term environmentalist has become a, an epithet. Um, and when we consider that everyone needs clean air, clean water, environmentalists, but that term became a loaded one. You know, in, in some ways, starting with the Nixon administration, he had tried to be green for a little while and as a way to offset other political concerns he had. And then as we moved into the, the Reagan era with James Watt, um, it, it, it became a, seemingly a political choice between the environment or the economy. And unfortunately, that's a narrative that we can't seem to shake, that it's either one or the other, but, but failing to understand that, in fact, it's the balance of a good environment that makes for a healthy economy. Uh, we need that bipartisan to come back. Sarah, one other thing that has become very partisan is the concept of climate change. How concerned do you think we should be about climate change today? And did that have an impact on the American West even centuries ago? I think that climate change is the number one issue that we need to be concerned with in the West, in the nation, in the world. I think that the consequences of climate change are going to be far-reaching and we are at a tipping point right now where I think there are still opportunities to make positive changes that can slow climate change dramatically. In the past, absolutely, climate has changed. People have experienced drought, things like that. But what's so different today is the rate of change. What used to take um, thousands, tens of thousands of years to uh, shift in a global climate scale uh, one or two degrees. Now we're measuring those kinds of changes in decades. And Arizona, in particular, is the fastest warming state of all the lower 48 states. 
there seems to have been a broader awakening in the awareness of the need to conserve water uh, or use it more wisely or find other ways to store it. I mean, even Phoenix has been praised for that part of it, at least, for being for, for sort of putting some away for a, a non-rainy day, as it were. Um, but <laughs> how much do you think water at the core of this needs to then, if awareness about that, well, we need water, but what about some of the other things we need to protect as well in the environment? Do you think other ones are getting short shrift, maybe in comparison? Well, I think that one thing that we're going to talk about Arizona, and, and water is, of course, central, probably the central issue for Arizona, but Arizona has also been experiencing these catastrophic wildfires that um, have been devastating the West. That's a direct consequence of climate change. Not only do we have uh, drought-stressed trees that are then blowing up into things like the wallow fire, but then you have pine bark beetles and so that's taking its toll on the forests. And I know, I grew up in Arizona, mm-hmm. and I've seen the change since I was a kid in what the forests look like in Arizona. Uh, I've seen the, the pinyon juniper areas in retreat. I've seen the ponderosas thinned out in places like uh, Pine and Payson. So I think forests are getting some attention, but in Arizona, you know, it's going to be water every day. How much can we as the average people trust that organizations on either side are in it for honest reasons and not to to make sure that they get funding to keep themselves going? Major uh, concern great. because some of these organizations are um, genuinely interested in promoting and protecting the environment. Some of them are genuinely interested in promoting and protecting economic uh, interests. And I think there is a burden on uh, consumers, on voters, on citizens, that we have to be well-informed. And everybody understands that the way to draw attention and support to your cause is to do the chicken little sky is falling kind of thing. But that doesn't solve problems. And to me, the most compelling organizations across a political spectrum are the ones that are offering real concrete programs for here's how we can make things better. And if they can say, here's steps that we want to see. The last paragraph of the book in your epilogue, uh, and I'm going to read part of this to you. It is time for a new collective paradigm, what we might call a triumph of the commons. Just as no one person is responsible for environmental decline, no one person can hope to change the West or the planet's environment. But when each individual acts in the common good rather than his or her own selfish interest, the results promise extraordinary dividends. Well, are you optimistic that that can happen? I absolutely am optimistic. You know, I teach students, and I can't go in being some gloom and doom um, bummer. And I don't appreciate people who just say, we're going to dry up and blow away, because there's nothing positive to move forward on. So do I think that um, we have real concerns? Yes, I do. But I also think that people can reduce their ecological footprint by practicing you know, participatory democracy and recycling and supporting local food and conserving water and voting with their dollars. So I am optimistic and hopeful, and that's one of the reasons I wrote this book. Sarah Dant is a Weber State history professor and author of the new book we've been talking about, Losing Eden, an Environmental History of the American West. And Sarah, good to connect with you. Thanks so much. Thank you, Steve.
This is KJZZ's Here and Now. I'm Steve Goldstein in Phoenix. A new collection of short fiction explores climate change, but its title indicates something even larger than that. It's called Everything Change, and it was put together by ASU's Imagination and Climate Futures Initiative. Joey Eshrig is program manager for the University Center for Science and the Imagination and one of the collection's editors. And Joey, welcome. Thanks, Steve. Thanks for having me. So how did the collection get its name? It's not climate change. It's Everything Change. Yeah. uh, So we had Margaret Atwood, uh, the amazing speculative fiction writer and a pioneer in climate fiction, out to ASU in 2014 to be our first imagination and climate futures lecturer. And we had the opportunity to do a video interview with her, which was a little bit daunting because she's such a she's such a hero of ours. But um, we talked to her about this concept of climate change and its broad effects on the planet. And she said, you know, I don't even really like that term anymore. I'm starting to think of it as and everything changed, not just a climate change. Wow. And we thought that, I mean, that really stuck with us. It's the epigraph for this book. Uh, we gave the whole quote as well as the title. And accidentally, it also, uh, we accidentally sort of landed on a similar title to Naomi Klein's This Changes Everything, which is a great book about uh, ec- our global economic system and its effects on the climate. So we sort of accidentally ended up in Naomi Klein's backyard with this, but Margaret Atwood uh, is the one who inspired us to use that title. I don't want to pay with too broad a brush here, but so much of the future, science fiction or other aspects of it, are pretty dystopian. It's this concept that, wow, we're all is all is not quite lost, but we're pretty darn close, and we made some really terrible decisions in the present, which affected the future. How many of the stories in this collection would you consider to be sort of, um, even if they're realistically downers, and how many are saying, hey, that we can we can fix this either now or in the future? That's a great question. And I I hesitate to put, there's 12 stories in the book, and I hesitate to put them into dystopian and utopian Mm -hmm. camps because most of them are somewhere in between. I do think several of the stories do present really grim pictures of the future. And there's one actually that comes to mind called The Grandchild Paradox, uh, which is a great story that really grapples with two young people's emotions in a very drastically climate-changed world where sea level rise has eliminated a lot of landmass on the planet. And so it's a very sort of far future, full-on catastrophe take. The story isn't really about people starving, though. It's not about utter chaos in the streets. It's about the emotions that these people have, uh, their kind of anger at, at previous generations and their sense of powerlessness about changing the shape of the planet. And at the same time, there's a beautiful little subplot in that story about these people building um, out of scrap and waste that they find dredged up from the shores in this little island. They build their own bicycles, these really sturdy bikes that can take the the hilly expanses of this island really well. And these young people are also deciding whether or not they should have a child together. And so the story really gets at this dystopian picture of how do we move forward when we're already living in that nightmare future, if that's the possibility that we end up in. And I think that that story to me is emblematic of what a lot of the stories do well in this collection, which is get at emotion and our frustrated and conflicted responses about how to adapt to climate change and, and our sense of persecution that we should that we should have to. And I think this is it, it, it was apparently quite easy for our authors to imagine themselves looking back and saying, why didn't we do something sooner? And, and you know, blaming their parents and grandparents. And how vital is it that we personalize these things, that there are characters in these stories that people can either see themselves in or grasp in some way? So I think it's, you know, of the utmost importance that we do that. And actually, I was just reading recently um, James Hansen, who's a retired NASA scientist, uh, 
has a, a, a not yet peer-reviewed paper out that says that the climate on Earth today is the hottest that it's been in 115,000 years. And uh, read about it in The Guardian. It's being reported in a lot of places. So that really kind of ignited a thought about this book because that's such a macro picture. Mm-hmm. He's looking at almost geologic timescales and, and looking at all of the available climate data. Um, I, I think it's extremely important, though, to not just present that data, but try to get people to empathize with people from different backgrounds who are very different than them. Uh, Barbara Kingsolver, uh, you know, an, an author with great ties to Arizona, once said good fiction creates empathy. And in an interview in the book, Paolo Bacigalupi, who's a really renowned climate fiction writer, Water said Knife that, was his book, yeah. Exactly, yeah, which is which gives us a rather grim and dystopian picture of Arizona, <laughs> by the way. Uh, he says fiction has a superpower, and that's creating empathy for people uh, in alien experiences, people allowing us to live inside the skin of people who are utterly unlike us. Mm-hmm. So I think that's really important because climate change is going to affect all of us in really different ways, depending on our socioeconomic background, where we are in the world geographically, our ethnicities, our religions. And so I think it's going to be really important to start to recognize how climate change is shaping people's lives and transforming them, and in some cases, exacerbating existing inequalities. And you know, kind of exacerbating the marginalization of already disadvantaged communities and getting to all of the different parts of the world and all of the different ecosystems that climate change is going to have disparate effects on is really important. And having different people's eyes and experiences to see through, I think, is the one of the best ways that we have to do that. Well, so does the villain in climate change fiction have to be some powerful force or can it be just collective neglect in some way? Wow, that's a that's a big question. Like almost um, like we didn't we weren't good um, uh, we didn't take care of the earth the way we should have, for example. I think there's a, a kind of a tacit uh, antagonist in some of these stories. I don't know if I'd call it a villain. Uh, in in one of the stories, uh, Victor and the Fish, which takes place in Montana hmm. and was actually written by an, an ASU graduate student, as it turns out, in English, Matthew uh, Henry. The the antagonist is really wildfires. It's not any particular person. There's sort of this boogeyman in the story who works for the Department of Fish, Wildlife, and Parks, uh, and he seems self-interested and maybe not adapting and reacting to this really uh, dire situation in a way that's kind to everyone around him necessarily. He's a little bit, he's primarily interested in gathering data and furthering his own career. Mm. But the the really bad guy in the story, I guess, is, is this raging wildfire that threatens to engulf everyone. And so in a lot of cases, I think we're challenged to think of whether Mother Nature or whether the Earth or its systems are antagonists or bad guys in these stories or whether it's almost this sort of, you know, retribution for, for, for bad decisions. I think the stories play with that in some cases. Sometimes it's rising sea level. Uh, sometimes it's fire. Sometimes it's uh, severe weather. Mm-hmm. So a lot of times people, what I've found in reading these stories and that what's really struck me emotionally was that in a lot of cases what we see are friendships, romantic relationships, family relationships that are getting strained or transformed or deformed by this rapidly changing climate. And so that's where the conflict comes from. There is this antagonistic uh, ecosystem or weather system in the background that's making people, putting people in, in, uh, in stressful situations, but it's often the way their relationships are getting changed that provides the dramatic tension in the story. Enjoy very briefly, about 30 seconds left. Uh, what kind of impact are you hoping this kind of collection has? You know, at the Imagination Climate Future Futures Initiative in general, we're hoping that fiction helps us have better conversations, more productive conversations about how to adapt to climate change. Again, how different communities and different places adapt and how we can have a response that's 
uh, sensitive to people, uh, to people's very different circumstances, and that tries to get to, you know, sort of actionable futures that we can that we can uh, live into, and that we can hopefully realize uh, if we uh, if we act smartly today. Joey Esherick is program manager for ASU's Center for Science and the Imagination. We've been talking about the climate change collection of stories. It's called Everything Change. And Joey, thanks for being here. Thanks so much, Steve. And thank you very much for listening. Thanks also to Jimmy Jenkins and Tiara Vianne for their help on today's program. If you missed any of our segments and want to listen to them, you can go to our website, kjzz.org, later this afternoon. This is member-supported KJZZ FM Phoenix and HD. I'm Steve Goldstein. Have a great rest of the day. It's 12 o'clock.